Paul writes to the church of Galatia, which we know as the book of Galatians, pointing to them to what someone with the Holy Spirit implanted in them does. And one of the things that they do is they don't, they are not led by the flesh as much as they're led by the Spirit, that the Spirit of God is actually drawing them to do things. And there's evidence of this, which is we start to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. We talk about looking more like Jesus. We talk so often about sanctification, a big theological word. And the reason we talk about these things is we want people to understand that praying a prayer, walking down an aisle, and just putting in your tip to God is not what the Christian faith is about. It's about trusting Christ, submitting to Christ. Does anyone else have an issue with submission? (laughs) Okay, a bunch of liars up in here. I guess I'll change the sermon, no. So we're talking today about the final, like I told you before, if you've been here, I said we're not gonna walk through each attribute in order. Today, we're talking about self-control. Gotcha! And we're going to spend time in this final one that Paul says in the attributes of the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. Here's Webster's dictionary definition. The ability to control oneself, in particular one's emotions and desires or the expression of them in one's behavior especially in difficult situations. That's so true. That is really the way many of us see self-control. And I would agree, but it is also something that is produced in us over time through trial and error, through the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't want any of us to think we can grow in the fruit of the Spirit by just being a better person. And I'm going to say that a few times because I hope that you hear the goal is not to try to be gooder, which isn't a word. We're not trying to be gooder. We're not trying to clean ourselves up. We are trying to look more like Jesus because he's saved us by us trusting Christ because he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And in order to have biblical self-control, it requires us to abide Another word for abide is to remain in Christ Jesus, to be reminded that you and I will always default to religion. Did you know that? You and I, based on our own flesh, based on our own human understanding of things, will always default to religion. What must I do to earn God's love versus the gospel, which is God loved me anyway, in spite of me, and he sent his son to do for me what I couldn't do for myself. And now because I've trusted him, I want to serve him. And as I serve him, I grow to look more like him. But we will default consistently to religion. So I'm going to give you kind of the content of the message today, that we grow in self-control in the mind, body, and tongue. All right, so I want you to just do an inventory right now. Which one are you going to be most convicted by? And I'll tell you which one it'll be at the end of the sermon. Mind, body, and tongue from a commentator that I was reading. He said, alongside love and godliness, self-control serves as a major summary of Christian conduct. It's in 2 Timothy chapter one, Titus two, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. It is the climatic fruit of the spirit, if you will, at the end of Galatians 5.23. And one of the first things that's expected of a leader in the church in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, Acts summarizes the Apostle Paul's reasoning about the Christian gospel and worldview as righteousness, which is given to you through Christ's work, and self-control, 
And Proverbs 25, verse 28 says it this way, they liken self-control. A man without self-control is a city broken into and left without walls. Self-control is way more important than I think we give credit to. And biblically, self-control, or let me say it this way, a lack thereof goes to the deepest part of us. It's not just what we do, it's our heart. It begins with control of our emotions and then includes our minds as well. Self-control is often paired with sober-mindedness. This is not, I didn't have three beers. This is, do you actually look at reality? Are you sober-minded when you look at situations? So today we're gonna tackle how self-control is something that not only does our human nature fight against, but how the spirit of God wins out when we pursue and submit, there's that word, to Jesus Christ. Self-control plays out in three ways. I've said them that we're gonna study today, mind, body, and tongue. And for a lot of us, we can confuse willpower with self-control. We think if we can just will something like we are using the Holy Spirit as the force, all right, then we have self-control. But self-control comes from above. It comes from something outside of us. It comes from something way more important than us, which is God working through the Holy Spirit in us, which he has given to every believer, every follower of Christ. And he has placed their eternal destiny. Those who have trusted Jesus, our eternal destiny is placed into the hands of King Jesus King. You need to hear this message that as we are talking today, this is not about cleaning ourselves up, all right? So I need you to talk, about, talk back to me. Here's what I want you to recite. This is not about cleaning ourselves up. Go. It's not about cleaning up. All right, you said it. This is not about trying harder. This is not about being gooder. This is about your control being handed to someone else. This is about you trusting more than you resisting. This is about you trusting more than you resisting. So today, we'll have to wrestle with control. Where do you, if you've committed your lives to Jesus, or maybe you haven't, where do you assume control? Well, that's mine. I got it. Do we think we have it? Do we think we have given it to Jesus? Or do we think we're somewhere in between? When Paul writes to Timothy about what is expected of the leaders and the elders of the church who are responsible to oversee the affairs of the church of Jesus Christ in Ephesus, Paul uses this virtue as something that any pastor, any elder, any overseer ought to be. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, and we miss it because it's in the middle. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach. Man, I've heard sermon series on being above reproach. I've heard all these explanations of what above reproach means. Faithful to his wife. I've heard all these conversations about what it means to be faithful to your wife. Temperate. What does it mean to be temperate? Self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. You wouldn't think that these would be things that, that Paul would have to call out to explain what someone with such a high responsibility, such a high calling ought to be like, but this was a litmus test to basically show others that if these elders, these overseers, these pastors were not living this way and pursuing these virtues, they had disqualified themselves for their role. So we're gonna spend some time in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Many of us are familiar with this. Maybe you've heard a series on it. Romans chapter 12, we're gonna look at two verses, verse two and verse three. 
Paul's talking to the church in Rome. He's talking to these believers. He hasn't met them yet. And he's talking to these believers and he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Ooh, that's good. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's good too, but sometimes we don't know what he means. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. All of us want to know God's will for our lives, don't we? But how often are we conforming to the pattern of this world? How often are we not being transformed by the renewing of our mind, but we're being transformed by culture? So Paul gives instructions to the Roman Christian to not conform. This word conform, it means do not masquerade. You all ever been to a masquerade party? You ever trick-or-treated? Masquerade. Do not Masquerade is something outward that you are not inward. Don't be conformed to this world or a better translation, not just this world, but this age, this era, this culture. Don't let this culture be what defines you. Can we just be real? A lot of us allow the culture of this world to to define who we are. But be transformed. The word he uses here for transformed is cool, and I'm a a nerd when it comes to these types of things. The word transformed is the word we get metamorphosis from, like a caterpillar and a butterfly, la, 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 right? Like that's what it looks like. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your outward appearance should line up with your inward self. Otherwise, you're a hypocrite. And this happens through the renewing of your mind. But what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you annually pay a due like the registration for your vehicle. Well, I'm renewing. But to daily and moment by moment have your mind renewed by Scripture, by God's very word, to meditate on what the Scriptures actually say, to find, are you ready? To find Jesus in every text. Did you know he's in all of it? All of it to find Jesus in all of it. And the renewing of your mind is to be challenged and convicted by saturating your mind with scripture, but changed by applying those scriptures, changed by applying them to your lives. This is how self-control is fulfilled by followers of Jesus through meditation of God's word, not by freeing of your mind, not that, but filling your mind with the truth and the majesty and the power of what God has to say about you and more importantly, what he has to say about himself. So you guys are familiar with Matthew chapter four. If you've been in the church a long time, maybe if you haven't, you've probably heard about where Jesus has been baptized. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit all show up where Jesus is being baptized. John the Baptist, the baptizer, baptizes Jesus. The sky opens up and the father says, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. And what's like a dove flutters down and rests on Jesus. And his earthly ministry is beginning, but then he goes into the desert. My favorite dove verse in all of the Bible, for 40 days and 40 nights, he did not eat or drink anything and he was hungry. Duh. Thanks, Matthew. Appreciate it. But in this, in Matthew 4, we're not gonna go there, but you see Jesus and Satan having this conversation And Satan attempts to tempt Jesus. He starts quoting scripture out of context. You want to know if someone's not being used by God? Are they quoting scripture out of context? And Satan attempts to tempt Jesus into breaking his fast by turning the rocks into bread by quoting scripture to him. 
Then he doesn't get anywhere with that, so Satan attempts to get Jesus to throw himself from the top of the mountain so the angels will catch him. And Jesus doesn't do that. And then Satan attempts to get Jesus to bow down and worship him. And thank you, Jesus, he never did that. And each time Jesus refutes Satan attempts by quoting scripture back at him in context. But that required self-control. Because I gotta be honest, man, Satan's doing that to me. I wanna rain down legions of angels all up in that thing. And yet he didn't. Verse three, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. (laughs) Okay, it's gonna hurt. All right, all right, sorry, I know where we're going. But rather, think of yourself with sober judgment. They're sober again. Sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Think of yourselves with sober judgment. Don't be a masochist, someone who goes, oh, I'm just so terrible, I'm so bad. I, oh man, I'm just terrible. Could you tell me good things, please? Because that's just another sense, that's another way of having pride. But also don't think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread either. Because let's be honest, You and I are nothing without the Holy Spirit. To not think higher of ourselves that we ought to understand what a powerful statement this is because clearly this is a timely message for our current culture and society. Is anyone seeing this? We have never lived in such a narcissistic and personally obsessed time in any period of history ever. You wanna know how I know this? Because I know what some people are eating for breakfast today because they posted on Instagram. And if that was you, I'm sorry. (laughs) So what does this mean that Paul is telling the church? Think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance of the faith that has been distributed to you. There's this great quote. Many of us are familiar with it. It usually gets said that C.S. Lewis, and no sermon's good without C.S. Lewis quote, all right? Just just know that. It's like, thus saith the Lord. Anyway, here's the quote. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That's good. That's a good quote. The thing is, C.S. Lewis didn't say it. Here's what C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it'll be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. That's the biggish step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. You can send me an email on that quote because C.S. Lewis has been dead a long time, but first take it up with God. Here's the point. Self-control includes how in your mind you see yourself and how you talk about yourself in front of other people. 
It is through the filling of your mind and the words and the truths of God that we see our need and our hope in Jesus. We often read scripture like we're the hero. So don't replace Jesus with yourself as the hero in scripture. We say, oh, these are the Goliaths of my life and God's making me David. You ain't David, bro. Jesus is David. Remember that. And so we look at scripture and we start to read it and we start to think it's about us. It's not about you, it's about him and what Christ has accomplished. So we must find self-control in our minds by giving up control to Christ's control. It's the name of the sermon, roll credits, done. So there's self-control of mind and body. (laughs) This one's gonna hurt. This may actually hurt more than just hearing that you're conceited. (laughs) 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and Corinth was tore up. Son-in-laws were sleeping with their mother-in-laws, awkward. They were going to communion. They had fun communion where it was wine, and they would just go and, and get as much as they could, and they would cut in line so they could have more communion. And Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he's going to challenge them in their self-control. Verse 12, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. If you see the quotes, you notice that Paul was quoting a saying, a slogan, a proverb, if you will, of the Corinthian people, and they had adopted it. And all sins could be forgiven because of the work on the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead. And and grace is offered to each one of us if we would receive the free gift of salvation But taking grace for granted is a symptom of not understanding it or receiving it. Taking grace for granted is either because you don't understand it or you haven't actually received it. He says all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. He's quoting a saying, and he knows that for Christians, we live in freedom as followers of Jesus. Do you know that if you have submitted to Jesus Christ, you Live forgiven. If no one likes any of the pictures you post on Facebook, you know what? God likes them because he loves you. Don't quote that. That's a stupid. (laughs) But you and I can live forgiven. We We can live playing with house money, if you will. We do not have to worry about our eternal destiny like so many people do. Rather, we get to look forward to it. But sin, even though once we've been adopted by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, sin will not exclude us from the kingdom, but it will provide consequences that are detrimental to our joy, our growth, and our praise to God. Verse 13. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Uh Uh-oh. Now some of you are going, oh, I wish this person was here to hear this. Don't worry about them. Worry about you. This comment about food was also a popular proverb for the Corinthian people. And it attempted to say that sexual encounters are as natural as eating. 
But Paul doesn't say sexual encounters. He talks about sexual immorality, which is outside of the consensual marital intimacy, which is known as fornication. (laughs) And the air just came out of the sanctuary. Awesome. See, here's the thing. I know some of you are having sex outside of God's ideal for you. And I love you enough to tell you that it's not worth it. It is in a committed, covenantal, marital relationship with your spouse that God has given you that is God's ideal. It is God's very best for you. I'm here to tell you it's not God's ideal. It's not the order in which God blesses us with. He chose to give sexual relationships in marriage as a gift and blessing for procreation, and watch it, pleasure. (laughs) If you're sitting with your kids, I'm sorry. See, God could have created procreation out of holding of hands, but he didn't, because my God's a giver of great gifts, amen and hallelujah. (laughs) Verse 14, now that it's awkward. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Paul then points to the fact that God raised Jesus physically. He will also raise us physically for those who have placed their trust in Christ Jesus. And there is this eternal relationship that will not be broken. Hear me, if you know Jesus, you've been saved. You have a relationship. I just wanna get, like, I wanna start sweating and preaching. It's because of Christ. But when you sin, you miss out on God's very best for you. That's what I'm saying. And I'm saying it because I'm the chief of all sinners in this room, because I know my heart. And I know how wicked it is. And this eternal relationship will not be broken, but how we treat our bodies. The bodies that have been redeemed by Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and through the resurrection is very important. We do not see our bodies as our own if you are a follower of Christ, but as living sacrifices given over to the work and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Verse 15. Do you not know that your body, bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Dang, never, he says. See, Christians, those who have committed to Christ, are known collectively as Jesus's bride. Collectively, we are the church. We are known as the body. We are Christ's body. And when we commit sexual sin in particular, Paul is saying that we're uniting Jesus with a harlot, with a prostitute. It is not just us that we represent once we're included in Christ. It is Christ himself that we represent. So here's why I'm addressing sex in the church. Well, it's in the text. But here's why I'm addressing sex in the church. Because I have done ministry for about 16 years. I have helped in youth ministry, children's ministry, preaching ministry, evangelism ministry, discipleship ministry, outreach ministry, been a lead pastor, an associate pastor. I've done all these different types of ministries. I've been a small group leader. I have done a lot of ministry in 16 years. And here's what I know about when sexual immorality comes into the church. People lose their doggone minds. Doggum? That's a word, right? Dog, dang them. See, I'm not from the South, so at least I didn't say what I was going to say. We lose our minds, especially in leadership. And here's what I mean. We start to justify, don't we? 
If you're not shaking your head, you're wrong. <laughs> we start to justify. And we don't realize how it leads to decay in relationship. It leads to decay in trust of relationship. And it leads to decay in holiness. You've heard that all sins are the same, right? You've heard that, which is true. I mean, all sin separates us from God. It creates this chasm between us and God. Jesus was placed on the cross for our sin. But sexual sins, sex outside of God's ideal, God's design, seems to be talked about a lot in Scripture, doesn't it? And it was warred against more than other sin. You know why? Because it's relational. It's relational and breaking of a relationship is of first importance to God. You guys notice that in scripture? What's the great commandment? To love God and to love others. Breaking this command, especially while uniting yourself with someone who isn't your spouse, the person that God has given you, even if it's just not yet. Well, we're going to be married. It's not what God's design is. You know why? Because self-control, being willing to trust God, submit to his decree and commands is far more important to your personal walk and following of Jesus than how much scripture you memorize, how much you come to church, or how well you talk about Jesus to others because it's about submission. Verse 16, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Paul points out the bad news when it comes to fornication outside of the realm of marriage, but optimistically, so take a breath, optimistically, you must be able to see how wonderful and personal and important an intimate relationship with your spouse is. God didn't let sex become a nasty secret that mankind figured out. It was a gift. It was a glorious way to be intimate with the one that God gave you. But self-control, when it comes to our bodies and our urges and our hormones, is impossible without us trusting Christ and being led by the Holy Spirit. So, so hear me. If you're single, that's okay. It's okay to be single. Please never think that, oh, well, the goal is to be married. Jesus wasn't married. Paul wasn't married. These guys are awesome. It's okay to not be married. The goal is not to be Married, the goal is to look more like Jesus. But as we trust and follow Jesus, we want people that are gonna run alongside us as we chase after him. So single people, if you're in this room, and I know you are, don't settle. We settle too much because we're lonely. We settle too much because we think, well, this person completes me. No one completes you but Jesus Christ. It's not worth it to settle. Verse 17. Whew. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. This truth that we are united with him, one in spirit, it means that where he starts and where we end, it should not be obvious because we're with him, we're growing, we're pursuing Christ's likeness. 
And then verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. He ain't talking to married couples. Get it on. Marvin Gaye said it. It's a good thing. Married sex is the best. You can quote me. Make a meme. I don't care. Laura, get on that. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. (sighs) To sin against your own body has consequences. It has, it's not something to be taken lightly or nonchalantly. And it's why Paul addresses it pretty consistently, especially to the Corinth people who had lost their minds where people didn't consider the consequence or the lack of Christ-likeness that it exhibits. Verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. (laughs) Oh, thank God. Friend, if you've committed to Jesus, if you identify with the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and through the empty tomb, If you say that you are a Christian and you mean it, you are no longer your own. You were bought at a price. You were adopted into the family. You do not live for yourself any longer. But if you claim these things and yet you refuse to allow God to have control, and this area is a big one, church, And it has consequences. If you want to stay out of hell, but you don't want to bow down to Jesus, you are not a Christian. Waited 16 years in ministry to be able to say that to a church because no one else ever wanted me to say that. But if you don't want to go to hell, but you don't want to bow down to Jesus, you are not a Christian. And I love you enough to tell you that. Verse 20, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You know what the price of your ransom was? You know what you cost to be forgiven? It wasn't just that Jesus hung on a cross. It was that he was a perfect, innocent man who hung on a cross. It was his perfect, innocent blood that was shed. That was the cost. Not just him dying in your place, but him never going outside of God's will, order, or ideal, ever. So honor Jesus with your bodies, church. This is not a purity talk. Look at me. I hate purity talks. This is not a purity talk. This is a submission talk. So don't say you love him and refuse to do what he says. I love that Paul ends with this and then transitions to what honoring God with your body looks like, which is to be intimate with your spouse that the Lord has given you. And all the husbands said, amen. But single people, you have a blessing of less distraction. And if you are growing in self-control, you need to know that the goal is not to be married. Definitely don't buy into the lie of culture that sex is the point. It's not. So if you hear one thing I've said today, hear this. Sex is a gift in a marital and covenantal relationship, not a mission to be accomplished. Sex is a gift in a marital and covenantal relationship, not a mission to be accomplished. But you know what? If you are single and you are not in a place and you are dying for this, don't settle. It's not worth it. Pursue Christ. 
You can worship God with your body by actively pursuing Jesus every day, married or not. All right, so spoiler alert, um, mind, yeah, convicting. Body, ouch, all right? Yeah, we're all on the same page? Okay, now let's talk about the tongue because all of us have that one, I think. Here we go. James, chapter three. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes to the church in Jerusalem, and he writes, and he says this, and James has some stuff in it that hurts, but here we go. Verse five, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire. A world of evil among the parts of the body, it corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. So self-control doesn't just play out in what we think, it plays out in what we say. So let me give you some advice that I've said to my kids I don't know how many times in their lifetime. You ready? Watch your mouth. Watch your mouth. Oh, actually, in this room, watch your posts. Because you never get a second chance for a first impression, right? I'm like a jewelry commercial right now. <laughs> but it's true. You never get a second chance for a first impression. And some of the things that you say, you can never erase that from someone's memory, what you've said or what you've implied. So there is this huge responsibility to praise our king with our mouths rather than use our mouths to slander others. <sighs> um, you guys know I'm like a big fan of the Bible. Is that surprising to anyone? If you're new, that would be, yeah, okay. Yeah, big fan, really like it. But as I've shown you before, I don't think we should like do this with it. <laughs> I think we should actually like read it and put it into practice. <sighs> and what we say matters. And when we're full of this, Scripture, and we get bumped, guess what comes out of us? Scripture. We speak the truth of the word, not like Satan, but like our Lord Jesus, because the word sanctifies. I have to actively pursue Jesus in every discussion. I'm tired right now, guys. I got into bed at 11.57, and in my age and the way I'm feeling with my body right now, that's like 7 a.m. three weeks from now, all right? I'm hurting. But it was worth it. It was worth it, guys, that I went to the concert with. It was worth it. It was fun. But I'm tired. Tired. Tired, tired, tired. And so I have to actively pay attention to what I'm going to say. I have to actively watch my mouth. There are some people, not in this room, <laughs> that if you came up to me, I'd be like, hey, it's great to see you, and I'd run away because I'd be like Jim Carrey and Liar Liar, where, never mind. <laughs> <clears throat> if you haven't seen it, it's a great movie. All right. <sighs> but I actively have to pursue Jesus in discussion, especially as a teacher of God's word. Because if I lead you astray, you don't want to know what would happen to me. I want you to think biblically. I want you to read the word, not because I said so, but because you want to know Jesus better. 
And I don't want my opinions or my agenda to impede what it means to know Jesus. So that's why we teach verse by verse. Let me, here, here's the reason why, because I'm lazy. I study verse by verse, so why not teach verse by verse? Just easier. <laughs> Topical, that's way too much effort. But I want you to know what the word says. I want you to know how to put it into practice. And I want you to know that there are people within this church that want to walk alongside you to help you grow to look more like Christ. Hebrews chapter four, we're going to end with this, which is like not true. Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. Who writes Hebrews? <laughs> no one knows. God, for we do not have a high priest. We do not have a mediator. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. You know why we sing Jesus's name? You know why we talk about Jesus? You know why we exalt Jesus? Because it's about him. You ever wonder if Jesus had urges? You ever wonder if Jesus almost thought about things that were unholy? I don't know, to be honest. You ever think Jesus wanted to toot his own horn? He could have. He was God. Walked on water, was raised from the dead. What's up, right? Like he could, but he didn't. I want to take you back to something I said at the beginning of the sermon. Church, this is not about cleaning yourself up. In fact, I would say it's the opposite. I, I don't like to give applications. Right? Why one of the questions in the back of the bulletin usually is, what's your takeaway or what is God telling you to do differently? I don't want to tell you what to do, but I'm going to give you something. You ready? Here. Confess your shortcomings. Confess your sin to someone. First do it to God and then do it to others. I struggled with something for years and then I fell back into it not too long ago and I confessed it to people I trusted. And you know what God did with it? He took it away. Sin is like a vampire in the sun. You put it out in the light and it dies if you truly want it to. And so are you willing to confess? Vampires aren't real, by the way. You, just, it's just a good analogy. but I would encourage you, confess your shortcomings. Find accountability. Ooh, why? They know stuff. Yeah, God already knows it. So be open with your life. Here's my favorite. Flee from opportunities. If you know you struggle with something in self-control, don't, don't put yourself in a situation where obviously you would do it wrong. The great theologian Barney Stinson once said, nothing good happens after 2 a.m. Let me quote it in Christianese. Nothing good happens after 8 p.m. Watch yourself. <laughs> Don't put yourself in situations where you know you're gonna fail. That's what children do. <laughs> Lastly, here's my, here, here I could have just, you started and ended with it. Here it is. Submit to Jesus. Submit to Jesus. Jesus isn't just an example. He's the satisfaction to the father of your sin. He's not just someone you look like or try to be like. I want to be like Mike. It's not a Michael Jordan Gatorade commercial. He is the satisfaction for your sin to God. 
That's why we praise him. Because he literally did for you what you could not do for yourself. And because of that, he deserves our praise and he deserves our devotion. And most importantly, he deserves our submission.